Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unplugged by Good Bets, where we provide the latest tips, strategies, and straightforward advice to underdog entrepreneurs and anyone who wants to leave a legacy by launching and growing a thriving social enterprise. I'm Nicole Jarbo from the Good Bets Group, and I'll be your host as we dive into the world of successful social entrepreneurship. Our episodes will be a hodgepodge. Some days we'll answer your most urgent startup questions, and others will interview founders you should know but we'll always provide practical and unfiltered advice to help you build a better venture faster. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Unplugged. I am super excited, and I say I'm always excited, but I'm actually legit, really, mostly excited for this uh, interview with Jonathan Johnson, founder and CEO of Rooted School. He's been a really good friend of mine, and I've been so privileged to watch his career sort of blossom and his work just take on such a life of its own and have meaningful impact all over the country. So what's up, Jonathan? How are you? Nicole, I'm fantastic. It's really great to be with you. Yay. And just so people know, we tried to we tried to do this before, and it was not going our way. So this, this is um, this is the time where we're we're gonna make things happen, and we're gonna share all of the great work that Jonathan's been doing. And luckily, his work has developed so much since then. So I am pumped, and I am just so glad you're here again. Um, all right, so let's get started. For all the people who don't know you out there. Who is Jonathan Johnson and what does he do? So, uh, hi, I'm Jonathan. I'm the founder and CEO of Rooted School. I started my career as a teacher at a KIPP school in Central City, New Orleans. And over the course of that and how things went, got an opportunity to explore how might we do high school differently in communities like mine in New Orleans. And it fortunately has blossomed to uh, now an opportunity that we have to explore building alongside communities in New Orleans, Indianapolis, uh, Clark County, Nevada, and Seattle. All right, doing big things nationally. So for all you out there, Jonathan is probably gonna be really modest but he is an award-winning, nationally recognized teacher and decided to take on this work of starting Rooted School, which is a school in New Orleans. And as he mentioned, they're all over the place now um, in terms of figuring out how to partner and work with other communities who who could use some support. So uh, I'm going to ask Jonathan, take us back to the very beginning. How did you get here? Were you always an entrepreneurial kid? What were your interests? Tell us about that journey. I like to share that I believe it started when I was in third grade and I came home to hearing my mother cry. And when I asked her why she was crying, she shared that we were going to have to move because her and my dad could no longer afford to pay the mortgage and the fees that came with the increased gentrification of our community. And so I had no idea what any of that meant at the time, but I remember feeling two things. One is sheer anger at the fact that her and, and my father, from my belief, failed me and my, my, uh, my sisters. And once I worked past that, I started wondering, uh, what I could do with my life so that other third graders didn't have to experience the loss and transition that I had to. And this sort of seed uh, of an experience started blossoming all throughout college and led me to uh, do the work that I do now. Gotcha. Let me, um, I need a few more details. <laughs> so yeah. where where were you? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Anaheim, California, which is the OC uh, for a lot of people who know that. And it's uh, inland Orange County. And this was uh, around the um, 90s um, when I was there. Got it. So um, you were a kid. You experienced this in Southern California. Um, then you went to college. Tell us about that. Where did you go? What was that experience like for you, especially having the experience of, of having to move and maybe a more tumultuous like 
you know, financially tumultuous uh, upbringing to going into college? I went to Chapman University. It's a small liberal arts uh, PWI or predominantly white institution in Orange, California. And the main reason I chose Chapman was because I got some good scholarships and it was about 30 minutes away from where my parents live. So, so if I needed to drop out for whatever reason, I could just go home and start life over again. I ended up not needing to do that. Uh, I ended up working almost full time to pay my way to being the first in my family to graduate college. And when I was a senior, I was trying to figure out what do I do? And I feel two pushes. One is like, go make money. And that was my family because we grew up living paycheck to paycheck, moved around a lot because we couldn't afford living and how expensive Southern California was becoming. Yet I'd become the school's first black student body president. And so I had a lot of access to break that cycle immediately for me and my family. And I end up saying no to that, to follow this other voice, which was inspiring me to pay back those who made my story possible. And the best way I believed I could do that at the time was teaching kids whose stories were similar to mine. And ultimately that led me to do Teach for America. I chose New Orleans as my first choice and the rest as they say is history. <laughs> it's that easy. Um, <laughs> so you said that you felt this tension to go and make money. I think this is really, re really real for a lot of people. Um, how did, yeah, how did you actually make that decision? Like, what did it feel like in that moment to say, hey, there is an opportunity in front of me, but I'm actually going to do this other thing that's not going to make me as much money, but is going to be more re rewarding to my soul um, and, <laughs> in a, and giving back to something I really, really care about, right? Like, what did it feel like to say no to something and pursue this other opportunity instead? Tony Morrison has this quote that has become my email signature lately. It's the function of freedom is to free someone else. And when I got the chance to be the student body president, it was a really great opportunity and foray into what the 1% um, does and lives and what they do with their money and how they spend their time. And it was exciting, it was everything I wanted, but I, I also was volunteering at a local elementary school uh, and, and did tutoring on the side. And these were kids whose lived experiences were not that. I mean, there were kids who were going home every day not knowing what they were going to eat for dinner that night. And it was a reminder of not only how I grew up, but how cousins and aunts and like how my family uh, grew up. And so, I, I just felt this sense of responsibility that um, it, it wasn't enough for me to get through college and get to where I am, but it, it was important for me to give that opportunity to others who may not have had the the influences and opportunities that I that I was given. And so it was just sheer because of my my values, a sense of duty that I felt, and uh, a sense of duty that I, I saw over time having a really big payoff, not just for me personally, but for the community that I cared about most. Nice. I wish more people wanted to give back <laughs> and can make that a more meaningful experience in their life. So thank you for that. Cause we wouldn't have known each other if you went and got <laughs> <No>. money. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have changed my life. My life would be much worse if I didn't know you. Let me just say that. And that's probably for right. the podcast. You and me both. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So, yeah, I mean, this is really interesting. So talk to us now then about, um, you, you went to Teach for America in New Orleans and you were teaching at a, a KIPP school, which is a, a large charter network for those people who don't know. How did Rooted come about? You know, you were doing well, you were getting accolades as a teacher. I'm sure your life was consistent in New Orleans. You've decided to take on this like much bigger issue. And um, even like just 
put your own life in upheaval, I think, to start Rooted. So will you tell us a little bit about that part of your journey and, and how did that come about? Yeah, you're so, so kind to me, Nicole. Um, I, I, so I started, when I started teaching, I worked two or three jobs to make ends meet um, and take care of loans that I had. And so I was in a model that was painting college for all. And college is the, the means to a financially free and stable future. While I myself, was a college grad and not experiencing that. <laughs> and so um, after a couple of years of, of that experience, I meet a young man who's 16 in the eighth grade who changes my life forever. He was a neighborhood kid. And by the time he got to me, closed a four-year learning gap in reading and math. One of the reasons he worked as hard as he did because he wanted to become the first in his family to make it to and through college like I did, because coming from families like ours, college was seen and still is in some cases seen as the ticket out. He was also poor and during his eighth grade year started selling drugs to support his family until the spring of his eighth grade year, he's murdered during one of these drug deals by a classmate I also taught. When we're at his funeral, we learn based on his ACT projections, he is on track to receive something called TOPS in Louisiana, which is a full tuition scholarship to any state college in, in Louisiana. And so had he lived, he'd be wrapping up his last year, potentially a free college. So when this happens, it is a game changer for me. Because up to this point, I'm having the end in sight. I'm finishing my second year of teaching. I'm going to go to law school, maybe finally make money one day. And I am forced to confront a reality that I was denying for most of my life, which is that birth, more often than not, in a country like ours, defines fate. And once again, I felt this sense of duty to not only give back, but figure out how to improve the odds for young people like Ricky and me. And so I don't go to law school or any of the other options I was thinking about, and I continue to teach in the classroom, trying to figure out what might be possible. Uh, and then in my fourth year of teaching, I reach a breaking point where um, we're continuing, I, I see us and I see a lot of other models continuing to do uh, what we had been doing, which for my guesstimation wasn't working and working for me meant it wasn't shifting life outcomes in a way I felt would be meaningful. And so I made the choice to leave the classroom and accept an opportunity to figure out what might be possible. At that time, we were staring a very interesting opportunity in the face in New Orleans, where over the next decade, and this was 2014, the city was projecting tens and thousands of jobs opening across several industry sectors that would not only offer family sustaining wages, but didn't require a four-year college degree. And so me, crazy me at the time and, and some others were asking, well, what if we built schools, high schools that not only got young people into colleges that work for them, but also fast track them to these types of opportunities and meeting local economic needs while meeting their own personal and familial needs. And that question, while really controversial at the time, became the groundswell that is now rooted. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, there was so much in there. Ugh. I mean, we can, we, gonna, we can, we can get into it. <laughs> no, let's, let's get into it. What, what is the point if we're not going to get into it? <laughs> so um, I actually, I think it's so important for me um, in the position as the interviewer to really take people into what some of these moments really feel like. Because I think it's easy to say, hey, this happened and then this happened and this happened and, and speak the sort of chronology of um, 
of, of your own journey, but being in it and living in it is so different than I, I think even just talking about it is. And so I want to zoom into um, one sort of moment in particular, right? You talked about the, the fact that, that Ricky could qualify for tops, which would allow him to get the scholarship, which, you know, inevitably might change the life and course of his family, right? And himself, of course. Um, but all of that went away. And you talked a little bit about it, but I actually want to jump back into that moment a little bit. And was there like a epiphany? Was there like a switch that turned? Like, just talk to us about that and what was actually happening when you realized that this was never going to happen for this young man. The, this is a great question, Nicole. The shift, I think, and I, I reflect on this a lot, I think the shift happened when I realized that it wasn't his fault. I think the temptation in moments like this or that uh, is to start asking questions like, well, who killed him? Why did he kill him? Um, but very rarely do people ask the question of what killed him. And asking that question of what required me to go through uh, an internal journey of other experiences I've had like this. And I, I had to think back to that moment when I was in third grade and my mom was crying and me blaming my parents for the fact that their neighborhood was gentrifying. They could not afford the fees that would come with home ownership. Uh, it, it forced me to go back to... Uh, a time when my cousin was murdered when he was in middle school because of gang violence that was in his community um, that happened to be a high poverty one. Uh, it, it, it just forced this introspection that my work never did up to that point. And I, I, I began to just realize that this is so much bigger than this moment it, there, there are systemic factors, though, at play that are creating these conditions that make murder in the eighth grade and drug dealing in the eighth grade possible. And so I, I, I made a shift in my perspective and in what I wanted to spend my life doing at the time, which was figuring out what role I could play in undoing some of those structures so that our, our young people can live more prosperous lives than they have in the present. Nice. Yeah, Jonathan. <laughs> I love that. Um, it reminds me, uh, you said earlier uh, that we live in a country where birth defines faith. And so I'd love you to elaborate more on that, knowing, you know, these two ideas are really connected. Yeah, I mean, there's a wealth of research now available to us from um, James Heckland, Raj Chetty, and a lot of others who put out work that just talk about the importance of living conditions and how a person's living conditions, particularly when they're younger in their lives, affects their living conditions when they're older. And what's become clear in our country, at least over the past three decades, is we've increasingly become a place where the conditions you are born in typically predict the conditions that you end up in. And there's a myriad of factors that interplay to create that reality. One of those happens to be the relationship between income, wealth, and economic mobility. And so, that shift uh, or, or that statement of birth oftentimes defines faith came to a, a greater realization that I arrived at around the, the significance of income to creating a better quality of life for people and seeing a disconnect between this aspiration of college that I was preparing students for and income. Uh, commensurate with wealth and economic mobility that I ultimately saw as 
uh, as being necessary to move the needle for the kids I serve in the communities that I work in. Okay. So you're, you're bringing some stuff up. <laughs> All right. I don't want to, yeah. I want to go here a little bit, even though it's controversial, but I feel like I always find a way to go here. Um, the rooted model uh, which we actually haven't talked about in depth yet. So giving folks a, a little bit of a preview, uh, which Jonathan just said was that, you know, he was working in an organization and I would say in a whole movement of education reform that really focuses on getting people into college, right? I would love for you to talk about, Jonathan, why that is not necessarily the best idea for some of these communities uh, that are facing extreme poverty, generational poverty. Uh, yeah, just let us know what you think about that. Yeah, could you repeat the question one more time, Nicole? Yep, sorry, that was a little bit all over the place. Um, do kids need to go to college? That's really the question. Uh, and what are your thoughts about that? I believe the decision of going to college is an individual one. Um, if left up to me, I think the answer lies in what is, what is the path that a person needs to take to be financially free. And what we are seeing is in increasingly that we are gradually we are uh, gradually declining in absolute upward mobility in the United States, and so to obtain a college degree for me um, is great. And yeah, you may ask different sorts of questions or be prepared to think or empathize with others in a way that you may not have previously had been able to. Uh, but if it's if you're you're taking on tens and thousands, tens of thousands, in some cases hundreds of thousands of debt dollars of debt uh, to not put your family in a stabler financial place, that's tremendously problematic for communities on the lower end of the economic ladder and I think needs to be interrogated more. I don't know if you want me to go into more detail, Nicole, that, but that's kind no, of the headline. <laughs> that was so diplomatic. Um. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, this is not about me, so I'm not going to say what I think, but I think it's a conversation worth having to your point, right? And I think that leads us to Rooted. You know, what is Rooted's model as a school? What makes it distinct? So one of the things that I think makes Rooted distinct is the that the fact that the school is built behind a very long range vision. Um, and the long range vision is grounded in this, that unless there's a shift in US policy, it would take about 228 years for the average black family to obtain the same amount of wealth as the average white family in this country. And I've devoted my life to work alongside others to lay the groundwork for closing that gap. In order to take on wealth, I believe we need to first take on income inequity and the income gap that exists in a lot of our communities. And so in a place like New Orleans, we have median white household income sitting at roughly $65,000 to a black households 26. That to me is increasingly problematic. And uh, when you think about the communities and the access to resources that making that kind of income creates for an individual and a household. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we close that gap? Uh, because I think that gap can actually be addressed faster than the wealth one. And so inevitably, this brings up the discussion of jobs and how do we get lower income folks into higher paying jobs. And so that is what Rooted's North Star is, is how do we get young people 
on a faster path toward higher earning jobs in their lives. And so to do that, we our strategy is to initially partner with growing uh, growing companies in the tech sector uh, because tech the tech sectors produce uh, more wealth than any other sector in our country and world and uh, is is showing no signs of stopping. And if there is a, a chance to make a, make a dent on this gap, it would be through this sector. And so we partner with these companies. We learn um, more about the entry-level jobs that they have currently available and are projecting. And then we figure out what are the prerequisites to be competitive for hire at these jobs and companies then backwards design the curriculum with that end in mind so that after four years of being with us in high school our students are presented with not only an acceptance letter to a four-year college which is you know, one big aspiration we have for all of our, our children that they're still getting into these institutions but that they're also being presented with a full-time job offer at one of our partner companies making an entry-level salary uh, between $50,000 to $60,000 a year right out of high school. And the belief is that if they get into these opportunities sooner, you know, no debt, is that they will be able to accumulate wealth sooner um, by the, the amount of their uh, income, disposable income that they can place in things like stocks. And that if you compound that over the course of you know, 10, 20, maybe even 30 years, their children will be starting out at a much further place in life and stability and, uh, and, and, and just overall health and wellness than, than what their families maybe ever have. And, and now we're talking about shifting entire, an entire social structure and economic structure within communities uh, when previously it was thought that it was not possible. So what's the goal of this work? Uh, the goal meaning like, like why what, are you doing point? it? Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the point of, of what I'm doing is, how do I take power? You know, what, what true power has come to mean for me and use that to lift others up um, so that they don't have to experience the repeat of the past. Mm. Okay. The reason I want to ask this is because I just... I feel like we are not necessarily surfacing in a productive way some of the challenges that different communities have in this country. Mm. And I've heard you talk a lot about 228 and the wealth gap. And I'm just curious for you personally, why is this your charge? Why is this the thing that you want to commit your professional life, your personal life and career to? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Nicole. I see leaders like you, like me, as having a significant mantle on our shoulders. And the mantle is that we are right now building what our country and world will look like and feel like and be like 30 years from now. And I understand the importance of seed planting because seeds were planted 30 years ago to create the wealth and income gap that our country is experiencing now, um, that many private and public sector uh, organizations who study social impact also understand has been really detrimental to economic growth. And so we're planting the seeds now is why this matters for me. And in order for a community like New Orleans or a community like the Far East Side in Indianapolis or North Las Vegas or the Central District in Seattle, like in order for these communities to research 
in a way that is providing economic opportunity for all, we have to think, we have to do things differently. And doing things differently um, requires a coordinated effort across a lot of organizations within a given community and state. Uh, But I, I, I think one missed opportunity is the role that schools can play in creating uh, a, a more prolific fu- uh, vision of the future than what we currently have, and that's that's something that is 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 what I'm uh, has become my uh, my bullseye at this point in my career in life is is how do we start building examples of schools, uh, or sorry, building more examples of the roles schools can play at, at making a dent in some of these gaps. I love it. I feel like it's what needs to happen. And you and I have had so many conversations about this. Uh, I was just in New Orleans uh, at an event with a bunch of different school leaders. And I, I had this moment of just getting really furious because folks were talking about school solutions that, in my mind, really had nothing uh, to do with improving the quality of life for the kids in the school or the communities they were serving at large. And one of the reasons. I'm so fascinated by the rooted model is that it's so connected to improving someone's life, right? In ways that are incredibly tangible. If you make more money today, that can potentially improve your life. Um, and, and just putting destiny and power back in the hands of the folks who've been disenfranchised. And so that's one of the reasons I love and am so fascinated with the model because it feels proactive in a space that's, really reactive um, when it comes to supporting different communities. Yeah, right. I mean, if I can, mm-hmm. oh, sorry. sorry Please Claire, do it. This is, build, yeah. this is yours. You do <laughs> so, your thing. So in the book Switch uh, by Chip and Dan Heath, they talk about something called the miracle question. And I'm bringing this up because your, your statement that you just made made me think of this. And it was just like, imagine the biggest miracle or change that you want to see in a community uh, or just period. And, you know, then take like, what's the first thing that we need to be different in order to get closer to that miracle. And then it's, then the unction was just the charge was go do that. And when I'm out in new Orleans and I go to uh, a, a chain restaurant and the cashier is a student I taught in my first cohort of eighth graders and she's now in her early to mid 20s and I'm asking or early 20s I'm asking her you know like what you know, so what happened like weren't you on track to go to college weren't you on? and she's going through this laundry list of things that that hit her unexpectedly that she would I want a world where you know the kids that I'm working with now in five years like I'm going to a local company and seeing them um, do UX testing um, I'm seeing them in boardrooms with other peers that that may have started off on a on a very different trajectory than they did, but they're weighing in on the same strategic problems uh, and they're solving problems collaboratively for, uh, for, for a company's strategic benefit. Like I, I, I just see a world where our kids don't have to be that cashier, if that makes sense. And it's, we're so close to that world being possible if we allow it. And I think we can only go up from there. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, there's just so much there. And I love this idea that schools can play more of a role because in fact, they're one of the, the only places that can play this role that you're talking about, right? Like we live in a country where education is compulsory. So people have to be there. So how do we make that the best, most productive, most helpful experience that kids can um, that kids can go through, right? In terms of setting them up for life success. All right, so I'm gonna jump around a little bit because that's how my brain works. And now I wanna zoom into starting Rooted. 
Yeah. Like, how do you go from, I feel like I have to do something to running a full-fledged organization? I think, I think it's a profound question. And, you know, this is where I think context matters. And in 2014, New Orleans, um, through uh, groups like New Schools for New Orleans, 4.0 Schools, and others, became this bastion for education innovation, particularly through schools, uh, where the community was really willing to take risks to rethink how public education um, was structured and happened. And so um, in that kind of timing, I saw an opportunity to, to make a contribution. And so yeah, can I stop you really quick? So yeah, for the folks sure. who don't know what a 4.0 schools does or a new schools for New Orleans, could you just briefly tell us like what those organizations do and, and what's their role in this? Yeah, absolutely. So New Schools for New Orleans is a nonprofit organization that raises funds from high net worth individuals and foundations to further local goals around edu public education. And this can take the form of uh, seed funding, new school designs to um, talent or human resource and human capital uh, groups like Teacher America. An entity like 4.0 Schools may collaborate with a New Schools for New Orleans, uh, though 4.0 Schools itself uh, is a seed funder of new ideas for public education and maybe even private education. And so 4.0 schools was at a time where they were thinking about you know, how the path to making big innovations in public education or even private um, start with small bets. And so how can we, or you know, 4.0 school, identify promising leaders with promising ideas and give them some you know, small amounts of cash to test these ideas out. This, is, this, is, this was the context that I had that was really rare to find at the time. Uh, and I, I, used, I used that to, to test out some of the initial ideas I had about um, uh, of, of training a younger talent pipeline than what companies were used to hiring. All right. <laughs> so take us to like the, I mean, take us into the mechanics of it. Cause there are folks yeah. out there who, you know, are, are you five years ago, right? Like they're, they're starting to experience some momentum. They feel really juiced about the thing that they want to solve and, and commit to. Um, how do they go about finding champions to support them. And I think this is something you and I actually just talked about this in a different context, right? But early on, how are you leveraging those resources around you? I think a lot of this is context and luck. And I was in New Orleans or happened to be in New Orleans at a time when they were willing to make some significant bets and risks on leaders like me introducing new ideas in our local landscape that might have the chance to become something bigger. And I saw a window and, and kind of took it, and that led me to 4.0 schools. And something I learned from 4.0 schools that has been really catalytic to uh, practices that I do now in my work and to advance it is training in, in, in design thinking. And this notion of you know, the path to big change is first taken through small steps. And the, the mechanics of how 4.0 trained me to think about big social change in terms of small steps first is, has been huge for my own development and growth. And so it started with, it started with that. And it's, you know, I envisioned a world where young people, you know, teenagers were be being hired uh, 
or, or they were competitive for the same jobs as college graduates. And so I wanted to figure out like, how do I build that reality? That is currently not the case, even though there are examples of this, you know, sort of peppered throughout Silicon Valley um, and other companies who have made these risks around the country, but, but nothing streamlined and, and, and really no blueprint for how to do this, particularly with kids from high poverty communities. And so the first pat or first step I took toward that were a series of different pilots. Um, and I can get into the intricacies of that if, if you'd like, Nicole, but those pilots compounded to a, a larger scale one where I worked with 15 students at a local high school and basically ran a self-contained school within a school for a year. Um, to test out this possibility of companies hiring young people um, right out of high school. And that pilot then earned me the opportunity to secure a charter for a high school in New Orleans. Uh, and then that led to you know, what is now um, rooted school in its third year going on its fourth. And then you know, the opportunity to open up uh, high schools in partnership with communities in Indiana, um, Nevada, and in Washington. All right. So you mentioned pilots. Um, what is, what is a pilot? What's the purpose of a pilot? Yeah, I, I see a pilot as a a slice. Uh, connected to a bigger whole. And it's a slice that you could say is the most important one. Um, and it, it's, an, it's usually driven by an assumption. And so in order to prove that, young, you'll, I'll use me, in order to prove that a, an 18-year-old can compete for the same entry-level job at a tech company as a a 21 or 22 year old what is what is the biggest assumption i'm making in that statement or in that question uh or reality that i want possible and so the pilot is or, or a good one is designed to test for that and um test for it in a way that removes as many variables and and what i would call noise as possible so that you can get to the purest form of learning possible to inform what future assumptions need to be tested before you expand on a bigger scale. Gotcha. So basically you have an idea. I think if I do this, it will help people do this. You want to make sure that works. You do it without spending a ton of resources, right? Yeah. And, and then you get, you start getting traction. Now, how do you use yeah. that traction to start building champions um, around your cause and your idea? Great question. So to do the pilot, in many cases, you need backers, um, whether it's a 4.0 schools or some other investor or supporter. And you're getting that backing based off of a commitment towards shared goals. And so the pilot is designed to get those goals or close to them. Once you do the pilot, then it becomes a reporting of what you actually achieved, what did you learn, what were the biggest you know, fail, you know, fail, failures, et cetera. And then it, there's, there's a potential recommitment to future shared goals to learn more. Uh, because of some long-range plans or interests that you and your backers may have. And so there's just this cycle, uh, constant cycle, and I'm, I'm very much doing this now, of getting the support you need to do the tests that you need to do, to get the information um, to decide what direction future tests need to take. And the work of an entrepreneur I see is a constant cycle of that. Um, that hopefully and gradually expands to a bigger scale. Awesome. Now take us into, okay, 
I'm asking this question because you're so good at this. And for the people who don't know you, you all need to know that Jonathan is incredible at this. How do you get people who are so different than you in terms of background, experience, industry, et cetera? How do you get them to back what you're doing? And again, backing, of course, can mean support, right? It can mean financial support, um, uh, volunteering time, whatever that is. But how do you start to influence and connect with folks who are vastly different than you are? I think, uh, or, or something that I've come to learn uh, and use in my approach is it, it first takes uh, a listening orientation to every conversation. And so how am I talking less and listening more? And so that's the first thing is you have to want to listen to people. I think then it's like, what are you listening for? And what you're trying to figure out, and you can ask this directly or just kind of arrive at this, is you're trying to understand what people want and what are they prioritizing at a particular time. And given my work, this takes on a number of different shapes. I may be talking to a CEO at a growing tech company who. Uh, or, or two CEOs at two growing tech companies who have vastly different needs to talent. And it's those nuances or understanding those nuances that can be the deal breaker to future collaboration. But I wouldn't know that if I didn't listen and I didn't ask questions and try to unpack those nuances. And so I think that's the key to it, Nicole, is, is, is listening and it's it's listening for what people want and then figuring out how what you're building can help facilitate that so that you're both at the end furthering each other's goals towards whatever vision of the future you might you might have in mind awesome thank you um and i'm going to push on that a little bit and ask what if you find out what someone wants and there's not alignment but you're not sure where else to go, right? And to put a finer point on that, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs who feel like they have to show up differently um, as they attract support and that there's not a lot of connection. How would you advise someone who may be having that experience? Like they've met the big players, all the great funders they're supposed to know, but it just feels like there's so much misalignment. Like where do you go next? How do you approach that kind of experience? I think it's a great question and it's a, a challenge that I navigate too and, and will always navigate. Uh, I think you can't force it. And I think a big error comes when a leader is trying to force something that they think should happen um, without knowing the fuller picture. There, are, there could be a myriad of reasons why you're not connecting or resonating um, in a way that will be meaningful. Um, and that's fine. Um, but realize that it's, it's just for now. And so navigating it is don't force it. Realize that a no now or you know, not moving forward the other now isn't permanent. It may just mean not yet. And then figure out a structure to update this group that you think um, may have some synergies with you around the areas that of your work that will likely most resonate with them. And through the course of time and that consistency and continue to build traction, um, it will earn, uh, or, or I think the, 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 the path that that relationship is meant to take will make itself known. Got it. Thank you. I mean, I, there's this idea of being patient that I think is just so difficult for everyone. I mean, I'm speaking from my own experience, <laughs> but yeah. I think it's really hard to say, hey, this might not actually be the right champion for you. This might not be the right person for you. Um, but I appreciate you talking about it that way because I think it's easy to get bogged down when your experience is one in which you feel like you may be rejected or if you, people just don't really see your vision. 
Um, okay, I want to I want to shift a little bit and talk more about you. Yeah, and you've obviously had to grow and develop a lot over the past few years running this organization, going from I'm on a team to running the team and leading the team. And I'd love to hear about what some of your biggest reflections or takeaways about leadership have been thus far. Yeah, I love this question, Nicole. And I see it, I could answer this in a myriad of ways, but the biggest reflection has come through understanding the unique role I play in the organization. And that took a lot of time to get clear on, though I, I've arrived at a place where uh, my biggest asset to the work is that of a facilitator. And what I mean by that is I'm not the, the person that is going to ensure the students achieve mastery on this lesson on the path to getting this credential and getting the, like I'm not getting the students jobs uh, or training the students. Uh, I'm not coaching our teachers, but what I am doing is casting a vision of what might be possible. I'm amassing the resources needed to get to that vision and doing my best to recruit and inspire others who want to do that same thing. And the more and more I'm effective at doing those things, I think the more likely we will reach our, our long range goals and plans. And that's, that to me has been the biggest realization is, is that of a facilitator and a creator. All right, so I wanna know more about this. How did you figure out that the best role for you was really in that facilitation uh, role? That's a great question, Nicole. It was a slow build, and it was a slow build um, that was filled with um, constantly seeking feedback from our team, from other stakeholders, um, and then also a lot of personal reflection on what um, what brings me joy in the work? Uh, what do I appear most skilled at? What do I appear weakest at or least equipped to do? And finding out through that process, a repeated process of reflecting um, where I ultimately wanted to spend my time. Interesting. Interesting. Um, how do, how do you figure out what you're best at? I, I, I don't know. I, I, the way I think about it is now is I think it has to, it first starts with like, what are you most curious about? And following passion, curiosity, what brings most energy to you. If you're not excited, <laughs> uh, it's gonna be very hard to not only get things done effectively uh, with others, but also like you're just not, you're just not gonna be effective if you're not excited by it. And, um, and, and, and particularly when times get really tough, it's, it's the excitement, it's the joy you derive from the work that will often carry you to the other side. So I think first it's like really understanding what that is. And some people arrive at that sooner or uh, easier than others, but I think that's the first thing. And I think, you know, it's, it's realizing that you're not doing this alone and that there are many others. And I, I would prioritize people you trust the most who work very close to you, who see things about your, your strengths and your weaknesses that you may take for granted that you need to have conversations with often and understand um, what you are bringing that is advancing the work and then where you might just need to get out of the way or what you need to stop doing in order to be more effective and then also help the team get to the goals faster. Um, and I think, and then I, I think 
you also realizing like whatever your goals are, you know, in my case, I'm very interested in workforce development, economic development, et cetera. It's also finding ways to tap into that, that uh, those networks of people who are solving similar challenges and, very, and, and learning from them um, where your work stands and the long continuum of, of, of organizations and folks trying to solve similar problems uh, and, and just constantly figuring out how to position effectively. Got it. I feel like that's like a lifetime <laughs> journey and learning and probably actually changes more than we think it will over our life. So I appreciate you talking about that. I think it's tough. Um, I want to, I wish we had more time because there's lots of things we have not talked about. But I want to ask a, a couple of questions just about what's top of mind for you right now. So knowing that you have all these moving pieces and for all of you that, uh, people listening out there, Jonathan is literally in a different city every time I talk to him. Like, I don't actually really know where he lives. Um, but how do you manage all of these moving pieces you have to deal with? So it's the self-reflection, it's running an organization, it's finding new opportunities and partnerships for the organization. How do you get through all of this? Can you ask the question again or differently, Nicole? Yep. How do you manage your time when you have so many things to do? There's a book that um, I use, among other things, that keeps me grounded in what to focus on. It's called The One Thing by Gary Keller. And the, the book was was formative for me in that it forced me to focus um, on this idea that um, if you can find out or prioritize like the one thing that you need to, to work on in a given year or a month or a week or a day, you, you actually remove a lot of other dominoes down the line that may have come up as quick hits you would have taken on. And so the, the, the challenge of working effectively or being productive is, is not like, oh, I've got to get through a hundred things today. It's actually making fewer decisions that have big consequences. And so while I'm still very early in this journey of, of building now with different leaders uh, and communities across the country, that practice and that discipline of constantly reflecting on, okay, what's the one thing I need to do this hour? What's the one thing I need to do today to move the work forward is, is what is, has helped us move a lot further faster. Awesome. I love that book. Uh, it's one thing we'll put in the show notes. It's Gary Keller and uh, I think Jay Papasan. Yes. Um, I read it all the time and never do the things it tells me to do. But <laughs> I, I dream about doing the things it tells me to do. Um, uh, all right, quickly, I wanna just, this is not a quick topic, but yeah. I wanna talk a little bit about how your identity affects the way that you approach this work. Uh, obviously, your identity you know, plays a pretty significant role in the way the work is structured and what you care about, but I'm curious, how has being your authentic self, um, how has that either furthered the work, felt like it was an impediment to the work, or anything in between? Hmm. I think about this question a lot, Nicole, and in a variety of ways. So if we need to repeat the question uh, or repeat answer, let me know. <laughs> but No worries. Uh, uh, I think there are two layers to this. One is how I perceive my identity and then how others perceive me. And I think being effective takes an intricate understanding of both. And understanding that both will change depending on community and context that you may be, that you may be in at any given point in time. Um, how I'm viewed in a black church in New Orleans 
is going to be different than how I'm viewed in a white church in New Orleans. It's just, it's just different. Even though I may be the same person, mm-hmm. I'm just going to be viewed differently. Right. And, and being an effective social entrepreneur or social impact leader requires, or just leader in general requires that, uh, that attention to detail. And so how I've, I've come to process this. So one, I've, I've had to, really come to grasp that in order to be effective, I need to have an understanding of both and constantly be reflecting on both. I think also a part of this is um, is also understanding my intentions. Um, because I'm in a lot of communities, uh, different communities uh, that have different socio-political, socio-cultural context, there's always this question of like, why are you here? Like, what are you trying to get done, basically? And the way I approach that question now is different than how I did five years ago, but it's something that is almost akin to what uh, Dr. King shared in his letter from Birmingham Jail, which is, um, I, I'm, I'm here because I was invited here. Second, you know, injustice is here. Like the wealth gap is here, the income gap is here. And I would like to learn more about who's doing work to address this, um, if there are folks. And then thirdly, like how might I add, figure out how I might add velocity to uh, solutions here. And that, that nuance has changed changed my relationships with community um, radically um, than when I started and was just kind of coming in like, hey, this school is needed uh, or there's this gap and I, I have a solution that could work. Um, that actually was making me less effective uh, in, in, in building collaboratively. So I know I'm like rambling and kind of going all over the place, but but those would be how I think about um, my answer to that question, Nicole. I think it's a hard question. Yeah. Um, I think it requires its own long episode <laughs> on, cause I think it's a challenge that a lot of folks that I encounter, uh, think about all the time. And it's something that I think about all the time with my, you know, intersecting backgrounds, so yeah, thanks for going there. I think it's something that we're going to continue to develop all of us as we do work and go into spaces that, you know, before we weren't invited into, right? Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I kind of want to close out with some advice for folks. So what would be your advice for people who feel like they want to make a move or build something of their own? My advice for anyone listening to this who wants to build something of their own is to lock yourself away somewhere, you know, go spend a weekend uh, at an Airbnb or whatever, and reflect on what, what you want to see differently in your community or in the world. 20, 30 years from now and, and write that out in as much detail as possible. After you've written that down, then step back and figure out what is the one thing I can do today to get closer to this vision? And then once you figure out what that one thing is, or maybe it's multiple things, then it's like, what, what am I most proximal to now? Like, where can I, where can I like take action now and move fastest? And in some cases it may be uh, a pilot, right? Of something. Maybe it is starting an organization, a C3 or an LLC or whatever. Um, Or maybe there's something else that already exists out there that is doing this work. And then it's just a task of, getting latched onto that work or the coattails of it. And then it's just doing it and doing it with almost 
childlike, reckless abandon and not overthinking it and realizing that once you step in that direction, new doors, new reflections and insights are going to make themselves available to you that may inform the next steps you take towards that bigger vision. But my, my biggest in advice is that it, it, it should and, and has to be anchored with some long range goal that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, superly scientific or, or thought out. I like that. I like that. I feel like people need more retreats, more think time. <laughs> have you seen the, the Netflix Bill Gates? I think it was like a mini series. Oh yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And he just like locks himself in a, a cabin and drinks 300 Diet Cokes. <laughs> and like reads all day, it's amazing. I, I do something similar, but it's with wine. So not 300 <laughs> wine bottles, but you, 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 get, you get the idea. <laughs> well, I know, I mean, that's why he's doing big things, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that, that caffeine fix, no alcohol involved. Um, all right, you're amazing. We definitely have to do another conversation because I know you're learning a ton about how do you think about scaling? How do you think about truly partnering with a community when you may not perhaps be welcomed in with open arms into that, to that community? And how do you advocate for folks and yourself and keep it all together? Like there's so much more to talk about. Um, sadly, we don't have more time to talk about this, but we'll definitely do a part two. And so tell the people though right now, where can they find you? Where can they follow along with Rooted's journey? You know, your, your Twitter, LinkedIn, anything like that that you want to share? Uh, yes. So um, I am uh, at Rooted School um, and uh, you can check out some of that work at rootedschool.org. I also have a blog that I keep up uh, called 228.org and that's all just spelled out 228.org uh, and uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, two uh, I'm forgetting what my Twitter is <laughs> let you know how often I'm <laughs> we'll, we'll find it <laughs> yeah you'll find it uh, just look up 228 and uh, I or Jonathan and I should be there Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. You are the best. For everybody listening, Rooted is very much a, a rising star uh, in the broader landscape of not just schools, right? This is more than that. The movement's much bigger. So definitely keep following their work. Um, we'll share all the links to anything that we mentioned today as well. And Jonathan, I just want to thank you so much for being here. Nicole, thank you for your friendship and the time this morning. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a question you'd like us to answer or an idea for a show? Email us at hello at goodbets.co with unplugged in the subject line. If you want to learn more about GoodBets Group and our work, then visit us at goodbets.co. That's G-O-O-D-B-E-T-S dot C-O. Till next time.